0: So Acts 17, and uh, we're in the, the we're going to be in Athens today and looking at this message. Let's just pray together uh, for God to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for what we've been able to sing. We thank you we can open your word. This is the word of God. Uh, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Uh, we're reading something that was written almost 2,000 years ago, and yet it's, it's for us today, here living in Stoke-on-Trent, to apply to our lives through the Holy Spirit living within us by the grace of jesus christ may it be so may you feed each of us this morning from your word please feed me lord i want to be fed today and i want to be pointed to jesus through this passage and i want to do that for my brothers and sisters so please help in all of that we pray in jesus name amen amen so um in india uh, a lot of missionaries were in india and sharing the gospel and um a lot of people were saying, we've, we've come to Christ. We follow Jesus too. We follow Jesus. We are interested in what you're saying. And, and uh, we want to, we want to follow this Jesus person. And so they were quite excited and they were, uh, really feeling like this is wonderful. People are coming to trust in Jesus as Savior. They're turning from their idols and, uh, turning to the living God. And, uh, sometimes what would happen was they would invite them then to their homes. They would go into this person who had, who was a Hindu who had who'd said they'd follow Jesus now and they would go into this Hindu home. And what they would see then was instead of uh, just that the Jesus was now the king, they would see all these shrines to their gods that they worship. There's many gods in Hinduism, and all these different gods were being worshipped. And what would happen was that they bought a little statue of Jesus, and they'd added him to their worship. So they're worshiping these, these Hindu gods, and they're also adding Jesus to their, their worship. What do we think of that? Is that true Christianity? Is that a true turning to Jesus? That That's not a true turn to Jesus at all. if we were to see that, we would be concerned, and we would say that's that's actually not quite uh what it means to turn to Jesus to turn to Jesus and become his follower means to turn away from all of this and follow him instead and here's the catch: we live in the West, we don't have these gods we don't have these shrines, we don't go into rooms and we see all these that we worship and then add Jesus, but we certainly do have things. Uh, within our culture, that don't change when we come to trust in Jesus, and yet should have changed. Things that we uh, think, well, oh, these are acceptable, these are okay, and just because we don't have shrines in them, that's fine. And what we end up doing is, as Western people is we add Jesus to our lives, and Jesus doesn't necessarily change our lives, and we think that that's okay. We think we can just add him on. He's just an accessory to life. I've I've added Jesus to, uh, to my clip of things about me. And uh, what we don't realize is that Jesus hasn't come to be added on to our lives. Christianity is what we call a worldview. In other words, Christianity is a way that we see the whole world. It's not just something we add on. The message of the death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't get tagged on to how you see the world. It changes how you see the world. So I don't know if you've ever seen the videos of uh, a man who's, who's colorblind or a woman who's colorblind. Have you ever seen those videos and they get, they get given those glasses? Anyone seen those before? So you've got a colorblind person and uh, he, he's, the family spends thousands of pounds and they give him these glasses and he puts them on. And for the first time in his life, he sees color and he just starts weeping. And I, I'm watching and I'm crying too. I'm like, ah. It's so beautiful. This he's just overwhelmed and overcome with uh, all of the color, and this. So he's colorblind. He puts on these glasses, and all of a sudden, he sees the world and all of its its beauty. And he like he doesn't want to take them off ever again. You know, he's like, I want to see like this forever. And uh, that's what it means to become a follower of Jesus. Christianity. Uh, we don't add him on. We don't add Jesus on. It becomes the lens through which we see the rest of the world. We begin to see the world for what it really is. And if you truly have this lens on, if you've truly brought on the Christian worldview and you see the world the way Jesus calls you to see the world, you better believe it's going to make a difference. It's going to change how you treat your career, how you treat your career path, how, you tre- how your work ethic is, whether work becomes something, oh, I just do it to make the money, I don't really care, or it's, it's my life, my job's my life. Both of those On the two extremes. And what Christianity does, it says, it puts it in its right perspective. It changes how you treat school and university and examinations. It changes how you treat your money and your possessions. It changes how you view suffering and trials. It changes how you view other people. It changes how you view the church. It changes everything. And it's essential for you to understand that Jesus doesn't come along gently and then fit neatly into your understanding of the world. Can I please come in? Can I please just fit in and squeeze into your mold? No, Jesus comes and smashes categories. Jesus comes and he flips the world the right way up again. And our understanding of what life is all about is supposed to bow the knee to Jesus. Your trulyest follower it bows the knee to Jesus. Have you ever heard the phrase going native? Uh, it's a derogatory term where the idea is that someone's come along and he's kind of become part of the, he, he's like a, a white Westerner and he goes and he he, he goes into the, to the Native Americans and all of a sudden he himself becomes uh, indigenous. He takes on the culture uh, of the tribe. And, uh, there's, there's one, there's a story of a policeman who they, they hired him or they, they, they commissioned him to go in undercover into an environmental group. Sort of like to, they make sure that the environmental group wasn't doing anything dodgy. And as he was in it, he himself became an environmentalist. So he went native. This policeman who was meant to be a spy actually became an environmentalist. And he, so he went native. Uh, loads of movies about this. Lawrence of Arabia, he's accused of having gone native. The Last Samurai. Anyone seen The, the Last Samurai? It's a good classic film. And he got this American general who all of a sudden he's like fighting for the Japanese. He's the last of the Mohicans, the same principle. Dances with Wolves for the old school people. Anyone seen Dances with Wolves? Kevin Costner, classic. So he's gone native. He's, he's, he's not meant to be this way, but he's, he's attracted to this culture and he, all of a sudden, he's no longer living according to the culture he was brought up in. He's totally changed culture now and he's gone native, so to speak. Well, the culture that Jesus brings and is bringing into the world doesn't fit in, but it clashes with the cultures of the world. And we're supposed to, so to speak, go native. And start taking on Christ's culture rather than the culture around us. Because the message of the gospel includes this declaration. There's a new king, there's a new way to see the world, and there's a new way to live. In other words, there's a new culture. When you trust Jesus, he gives us a new way to live, a new culture, a new set of values, a new way to see the world. So I want to do two things this morning as we look through Acts 17. I want to help us see this morning. This has been challenging me all week, by the way. I want to help us see this morning how we've been living perhaps more in line with the culture around us than the culture that Jesus has brought and is bringing. So I I hope it's challenging in some way today. I hope it challenges your categories and challenges and maybe smashes a few worldview things that you had going on in your mind. So where, where am I living more like? And align with my culture that I'm brought up in, or am I more like living the way Jesus' culture has brought into the world? That's the first one. And then second of all, I want to help you see how Paul faces these people with the transforming gospel message so that you can see how the gospel can transform you more into the person that Jesus calls you to be by the Holy Spirit. Because the goal today isn't for you to say, Oh man, I'm more like my culture than I'm like Jesus. Therefore I have to try harder. The goal for you is to say, and what does the gospel speak into that so it transforms my life so that I take on more of what Jesus has called me to do and live more like he's called me to live, okay? So before we do this in Acts 17, just, so, just to be aware, every culture has three parts to it, okay? And uh, if you want to jot this down or just keep it in your memory, that's really helpful. Every culture has three parts to it. The good and the beautiful parts. The good and the beautiful parts. Like things that are in a culture that are worth celebrating uh uh southern hospitality for example in the states is is lovely uh so you've got that you've got the good and the beautiful you have the neutral so it's just take relief it's not bad or good, it just is and then you have the sinful and unchrist like aspects of our culture okay so those are the three uh things to do ours is probably the most good and beautiful of them all i think it's the most christ-like if you would no, no one agrees um no sorry okay so as we read scripture. What we do is we read, and what we're supposed to do is we read the word of God, and we're living in our culture, and there's times in our life where we think, this part of my culture needs to bow the knee to Jesus, and I need to live more like what Jesus is calling me because my culture is not in line with what Jesus is calling me to do. Does that make sense? So let's look at Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verse 16 to 17 first of all. And uh, we have Paul who's waiting in Athens. He's waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy to come back down from Thessalonica and Berea. And he's just waiting, but his spirit gets provoked within him as he looks upon this city filled with idolatry. He looks at all these lost souls on their way to a lost eternity. He's looking at all these people instead of worshiping the true God, worshiping false gods. His God is not getting the glory from them. And he is provoked as he witnesses this. The story of D.L. Moody. Anyone know D.L. Moody in London? A great revivalist in London. Amazing evangelist. And uh, some of the men in London visited him because they wanted to know the secret of his effectiveness. Why is it, D.L. Moody, that so many people are coming to Jesus through your ministry? What's going on? Like what? What's, why is this happening? And he took them to his window up in the hotel room and he pointed outside. He says, what do you see? And they said, some of the men are like, oh, we see that guy looking well. And, oh, we see those things. And we see the middle class people. Or we see that long boy running around. What do you see, Moody? And he said this, I see countless thousands of souls. With tears in his eyes, he said this. I see countless thousands of souls that will one day spend eternity in hell if they do not find the Savior. And he was moved by that. And he's just a bloke like you and me, but he was moved by what he saw. And so Paul's provoked. These men and women enslaved to sin and false gods and Satan bound for hell forever. And he's provoked. These men and women who were created to bring glory and praise. To God, their creator, Jesus, their savior, honoring false gods instead. And so he's provoked and he can't help himself. He's waiting for, for Timothy and Silas, but he's so moved. It says in verse 27, Therefore, he began to reason in the synagogues with the Jews and the Gentile fearers. And he went to the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And what did he do? He preached Jesus. He's so moved at people lost in sin and Jesus not getting honor from these people that he's provoked in his heart and he's not going to wait for Timothy and Silas to come. He's going to go and he's going to preach Jesus. And I asked this question this morning for us, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, are you so moved? Are you so moved that thousands of people in Stoke-on-Trent, Newcastle-under-Lyme and round about this area are on their way to hell forever? lost in sin, enslaved to Satan in the kingdom of darkness. And we have the message of light. We have the message of the gospel. Not only do we have it, but we've been commissioned with it to be sent out and let them know, are we so moved? And if you're not moved, the same spirit that lives in Paul, the same spirit that lived in Dale Moody is the spirit that lives in you. God, move me for lost souls. Move me. So we get to verse 18 to 21, and we begin to see what happens as the, uh, the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, begin to challenge uh, Paul. So Paul continues preaching in the city. Two groups of people are now listening to him, and they call him a babbler. The word babbler means an ignorant show-off. Or a, a charlatan who's he's collected worthless seeds of information from different schools of thought, and he's gathered them together and he's preaching a bunch of nonsense is basically what they're accusing of the Epicureans and the Stoics it's important that we that we look at them today. Luke mentions them here because he wants his readers to see that the gospel has something to say to them Luke wants wants the people of Act the people who are reading Acts to see. The gospel has something to say to Epicureans, and the gospel has something to say to Stoics. The gospel has something to say to Greek pagan worshipers. The gospel has something to say to us. So the Epicureans and the Stoics, there are two popular systems in the Greek world, and both are seeking to answer two questions. The first question, what is the ultimate purpose of life? Don't you have that question in your heart sometimes? Why am I here? What's this all about? What's the point of life? What's the purpose of life? And second of all, how do we achieve that purpose? What's the purpose of life, and how do we achieve that purpose? Both of these movements were started about 300 years before Jesus. Now, look what—look, just please consider, before we look at these guys, look what they say about Paul. They say about Paul, he's proclaiming in verse 18, he's proclaiming foreign gods, Foreign gods, he's proclaiming. So, this isn't a we can just add Jesus to this. This is a proclamation of foreign gods. It says he's preaching new doctrines and strange things. Foreign gods, new doctrines, and strange things. Foreign gods in verse 18, new doctrine in verse 19, and strange things in verse 20. So, this is not oh, this is this is nice. We can add that, we can add this little message to our already existing culture we can add that like a little key ring to our view of everything. Um, so I'm a, I lived in Sunderland for 10 years and I have a little Sunderland football team key ring. Okay. Little black cat. Sorry. Someone got offended by that there. Uh, a little key ring. And then I moved to Stoke and I went to the bet three, six, five stadium and I bought myself a little Stokey one too. And now I got a little Stoke key ring. So I've, I've just added a key ring to my already, I like Sunderland and I like Stoke. and. These guys, it looks like they can't do that. It looks like they're not able to just add Jesus to everything they already like. Oh, we'll just add Jesus to that. No, foreign God, new doctrine and strange things. What Paul's preaching doesn't fit their culture. Now, not everything in these two systems were bad. There were some noble things being taught and lived out by them, but it's not the truth. So what is stoicism? And uh, we got a few things here up on the screen uh, for what stoicism is. Should come up in a little second. So Stoicism is the absence of passion and the pursuit of virtue. Okay, the absence of passion and the pursuit of virtue. Uh, in other words, the mastery of self, to have self control. Right. Um, that's okay. To have self control is good. Yeah. And not lashing out is good. To to be someone who pursues virtue is good. These are these are good and noble things. Um, the other thing to be aware about with the Stoics was they're pantheistic. In other words, God is in everything. He, he is everything. God is that door. God is everything. And, uh, other things to notice is that fate is sovereign. So fate is sovereign over the gods. The gods are underneath. Fate was sovereign over the gods. And then they're very altruistic. These Stoics were very generous uh, and giving. But what was happening was, They were very proud of themselves because this is all about mastery of self. You have the strength. You have the power to do this, right? And you're, maybe you're looking at this thinking, what has that got to do with us? Friends, British culture, and I mean, British Irish culture, a lot of that is how we live our lives. Let's, what, how is this in the 21st century? You ever heard of the British stiff upper lip? That's stoicism. That's not biblical Christianity. That's stoicism. Lie back and think of England. Stoicism. You can do this. Anyone ever said that to you? Have you ever said that to anyone? You can do this. You've got this. Anyone? That's stoicism. It's in you. The power to do this is in you. You've got what it takes. You've got to tap into your own strength and your own resilience. You've got this. That's stoicism. It's not biblical Christianity at all. One of the things Matt and I say to each other when we pray in the other room before we come in here, instead of saying, I don't go to Matt, you've got this, Matt. What do I say, Matt? He's got this and he's got you. He's got this and he's got you. And he says it to me sometimes as well. So I don't don't got it. And he doesn't got it. Matt actually prayed before we got on this morning. Last night you prayed for me. Alan is so weak and feeble. I'm like, thanks, Matt. But it was actually true. He, and he's, he's got no power at all to preach to the people in a way that would help them tomorrow morning. And I said, amen, because that is true. I don't have it. Stoicism says I have it. Christianity says I don't have it. Practice in mindfulness. Mindfulness is a stoic way to be. We got to we got to grind ourselves and we have to just collect our thoughts and become mindful. That's stoicism. Secular humanism and humanitarian aid that doesn't have Christ in it, social justice movements, these are all stoic ways to live in the 21st century. How does it affect the church? Well, we have it, we get, if, if a church doesn't have emotion or passion or zeal, that's very stoic because it's a absence of passion. Not asking God for help because you've got what it takes. And get this, not asking others for help. Not bearing one another's burdens. Not confessing vulnerability. Not being honest about our weaknesses and our struggles because we have to be stoic. We have to not let people know. You ever heard the expression, God helps those who who help themselves? Rubbish. I am helpless. I'm utterly helpless. I don't need the gospel to get me through this week. I just need to show up on Sunday and get some stuff. And then the rest of the week, I can do it myself. This is all stoic nonsense. Then we have the Epicureans. And they're going to come up as well. The absence of discomfort and the pursuit of pleasure. That was their goal the absence of discomfort and the pursuit of a tranquil life free of worry and the pursuit of simple pleasures. They're just simple pleasures. So there's no life after this life. This life is all there is. The gods don't care about us. They don't need the gods who made us or if you're like involved in some aspect of creation, they are far distant. They don't care about us. They don't need anything from us. So we have nothing to do with these gods. That's in the Epicurean system. Um, random chance. There's no such thing as fate. No God over everything. It's just pure random chance. And then it's extremely individualistic because I am the best judge of myself. I am the best judge of what's right and wrong. I do me. You do you. That's Epicureanism. I, I know what's right and what's wrong for me. And if you're someone who gets in my way, then I'll just have nothing to do with you anymore. That's very Epicurean. How does that work out in the culture around us in the 21st century? Have you heard this being said recently? If it isn't hurting anyone else, then what harm is it doing? That's Epicurean. Follow your heart. Everyone heard that one? I just feel it. I just feel I feel like this is right. Follow your heart. You do you. One of the popular ones on Facebook, don't cross an ocean for people who wouldn't cross a puddle for you. Ever seen that one before? That's Epicurean. Because you bring me discomfort. And we we follow Jesus who didn't cross an ocean, who crossed down into the grave for us. And we would say, don't cross an ocean for people who wouldn't cross a puddle for you. Find your inner peace. It's all Epicurean. And the church how's this play in the church. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? When people ask questions like, what's in it for me? It's because it's this pursuit of pleasure and the absence of discomfort. Viewing church and other people as a commodity that serves your interests and desires, we can just turn up when it's convenient rather than a group of people that you're called to lay down your life for. It's epicurean. Adding Jesus to your life for your own personal benefit. Feelings, not scripture, determines what's right and wrong. A non-committal, see you Sunday approach to church ministry or church family non-committal see you sunday and individualism where we're not submissive to scripture we're not submissive to the church family but how we feel and what we want this is all basically uh, epicurean i'm not i've got i've not got people in mind by the way i'm not like throwing grenades i'm just examining and it's just for you to search your heart with the holy spirit and is this me lord well paul comes into all of this in verse 22 paul comes with all of his wounds from getting his head kicked in a few times. So he's definitely not Epicurean <laughs> because it's the absence of discomfort. He's like I'm remarkably uncomfortable for Jesus sake. He doesn't come along and say, Hey, I've got something you should add to your understanding of the world. No, Paul wants to introduce them to a whole new way of seeing that will transform their entire lives. So verse 22 to 23, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. I was passing through. I considered the objects of your worship. There was an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I will proclaim to you. It's unknown God. Legend says there was a, a plague in Athens numbers of years ago. They were offering their idols and or offering sacrifices to all their false gods. The famine and the plague kept coming. People kept dying. Then they set up an altar to an unknown God and said, maybe there's some other gods. And they offered a sacrifice to him and the plague stopped. And so they kept up these altars to the unknown God. And so if that's true, Paul comes along and says, you know that unknown God who saved you all those years ago? He wants to see you now. And I've come to tell you about him. So we get to verse 24 to 28. Listen to what Paul says and compare it to the Epicurean and to the Stoics. And hear what Paul's saying to these people. To the Epicurean, he says, you're right when you say that God doesn't need anything from us. You're right. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything. You're right when you say that God doesn't need anything from us. But you're so wrong when you say that God is far off and not interested. You're so wrong. Look at the next little bit nor is he worshiped with men's hands though we need anything since he gives to all life, breath and all things. He cares intimately and he has made from one blood every nation of man to dwell on the face of the earth. He has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. What's this verse saying in verse 26? God, you, you know where you were born? You know when you were born and where you were born? God decreed that. God decreed that. The Epicureans are saying, oh, there's no such thing as, as fate; Everything is random chance. And Paul says, you are dead wrong. God decreed where you would live and when you would be born. So why? Why? Verse 27, so that you should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our beings. He is not a distant, uncaring God. He is close and he is near and your life is intimately linked with his and he is actively involved in every detail of your life, including when and where you were born. This God wants you to search for him and find him and live your life with him, not pleasure at the center. You're wrong when you say that this life is all there is, Epicurean. Because Paul goes on to say that he follows the one who died and rose. Verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By the man whom he's ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. I follow someone who died and rose and who's judge over the living and the dead. And Paul's message to these people is true joy and pleasure is not found in the things of the earth but in the intimate relationship with the one above. To the stoic, you're right when you say that their God is close to us, but you're wrong when you say that this impersonal being lives in submission to fate. This God is Lord of heaven and earth. Fate did not decide where you would be born and where you lived. God did. He is Lord and judge over all. And he's a person who wants a relationship with you. You're right when you say that the pursuit of virtue is a good thing. It's good to pursue virtue. But you're dead wrong when you say that you've got what it takes to do this by yourself. Strength and virtue is not found within you. Life is found in intimate relationship with the one above you. You can't even breathe without him. That's what Paul's basically saying. He gives us life, breath, and all things. You can't even breathe without this God. Never mind live a virtuous life without him. You need a transformed heart, a renewed mind. You need to be rescued from yourself. And so he comes down to verse 29 to 31 and he calls both of them and everyone listening to him to repent. He says, therefore, we are the offspring of this God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, not idols, something that we shape whether with our hands or with our minds and then worship. No, these times of ignorance, God has been overlooking them in his grace. God has chosen to allow you to continue in your idolatrous rebellion for this long. But now, verse 30, he commands all men everywhere to repent. Turn from your false gods, turn from your false systems, and turn to the true God. This unknown God has patiently overlooked your rebellion for all of these generations. But now a new era has come where Jesus is king and everyone from every nation is called to repent. God will judge in the person of Jesus Christ, whom he rose from the dead. It's Paul's message. You're right when you say, and you're wrong when you say this, and you need to repent and come to Jesus. So what's the reaction? Verse 32 to verse 34. It's the same as always, friends. The reaction to Paul's sermons the same as always. Some people mock it and reject it. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and they rejected it. What a load of nonsense. Some wanted to hear more sometime, verse 32, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from them, and some joined and believed. However, some men joined him, and some women and others with them. So the men and women hearing this message of a risen savior, thinking, that's what I need. That's the truth. That's the real stuff. And they come and follow Jesus. So I want to ask us this question. What does this mean for us then? Living in 2023, 2,000 years since the Stoics and Epicureans meet with Paul and hear this message. What has this got to do with us today? Well, if you've looked at this Epicurean stuff and you're thinking, yeah, the the absence of discomfort and the pursuit of pleasure and the individualism and the see you Sunday Christianity and the it's all about me and and what can, what can everyone do for me? If you see yourself in that in any way, and by the way, I see myself in that, then Jesus would say this to us: While I lived on this earth, my delight was to do the work of my Father and bring Him glory. If you're truly my follower this will be your daily desire and purpose too. If, that's, if you're truly a follower of Jesus, who's been transformed and made new, that'll be your heart's desire to do the work of the Father and bring him glory daily. Jesus would say to us, I suffered for you and I call you to share in my sufferings now. Jesus would say to us, you were made for my purpose and my glory. Colossians says that all things were made for him. You were made for him, for his glory. Jesus would say to you, follower, take up your cross daily and follow me. I don't want your Sunday mornings. I deserve your entire life. I'm not some distant and uninterested person. I'm not uninterested in your work life, your school life, your home life. I am deeply involved in every area of your life with my grace, my power, and my mercy. He would say to us, I give you a body of brothers and sisters to love and serve and pour out your life for. My church is not for consumerism, so I want you to reach out to your brothers and sisters and one another, one another. Don't pursue joy. Pursue Christ, and joy will come. not beautiful? If we pursue joy, we don't get it. If we pursue Jesus, we get Jesus and joy. <laughs> it's amazing. The church is not meant to be a cruise ship with a few people serving and everyone else receiving, but a battleship with all hands on deck. So the Epicurean, we need to repent, don't we? I need to repent to some of this. And if you're a stoic, if you were, if you were looking at that and thinking, yeah, the pursuit of virtue, and I, I've got the strength within me to do this, and I don't need to ask people for help, and I'm not vulnerable, I'm not honest. And by the way, I see myself in this. Jesus would say to us this morning, while I lived, I wept. I cried out to my father. I groaned. I was troubled. I lamented. And you can as well. You can as well. The psalmists were not stoics. (laughs) Just read one, a couple of psalms. They were not like, I've got this. Like, God, I am dying. Help me. Jesus would say to you, you don't have the strength for this week, but I do. So stick close to me. Jesus would say to us that uncaring, unfeeling fate is not in control of your life, but that he in his wisdom, love, and mercy is. Jesus would say to us, I gave you a body of brothers and sisters to bear your burdens with you. So reach out to them in vulnerability and ask for help. And Jesus would say to us, don't pursue virtue. Pursue him and virtue will come. The purpose of man in the old catechisms is to glorify God and to enjoy him. That's your purpose, friends. C.S. Lewis said this. If you look for yourself, right? Live for yourself. Look for yourself. Look for the things you want. Seek pleasure. Seek virtue. Don't seek Christ. Look for whatever feels good for you. Look for yourself, says C.S. Lewis, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness despair rage ruin and decay look for yourself and you'll find nothing but look for christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in it's one of my favorite favorite things c.s Lewis said find christ and with him you'll get everything else thrown in listen to me please 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 hear this jesus is not a means to some end goal Adding Jesus to your life is not a means to some other end goal. If I add Jesus to my life, he'll heal me. If I add Jesus to my life, he'll give me a better career. If I add Jesus to my life, he'll give me a wife or a husband. If I add Jesus, this, if I add Jesus, that. No, Jesus is not a means to a goal. Jesus is the end goal. For all eternity, what are we going to sing in glory? You alone are worthy. You alone. For all eternity, that's what was it. He's the goal. He's the prize. He's what we get. We're going to sing a little bit later on this morning. Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. Knowing you, there's no greater thing. Because knowing him doesn't mean, oh, I get all this. Knowing him is the thing. Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life. What was eternal life? That you might know him. Know him. The purpose of life is not the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of virtue, but the pursuit of Christ. And as you seek Christ, you find also that you have true pleasure and true virtue. So will you please, with me, with me, Not, I'm not throwing stuff, with me, as some of my brothers and sisters in this room, will we search our hearts this morning and ask ourselves this question, where am I functioning more like an Epicurean than a follower of Jesus? Where am I functioning more like a stoic than a follower of Jesus? But there's there's more. Those of us from a British culture need to realize that our Britishness needs to bow the knee to Jesus. And ask ourselves this question, where am I living more like a British person than I am a follower of Jesus? And I need to ask that as an Irish person. Everyone's heard of the Irish temper and I have it but it's not our temper. It's sin. It's sin. And it's not just part of my culture. It's sin that needs to be repented of and to bow the knee to Jesus. Our Nigerian brothers and sisters, our Kenyan brothers and sisters, our Eritrean brothers and sisters, our Scottish brothers and sisters, our Welsh brothers and sisters, most of all, our American brothers and sisters, our Moldovan brothers and sisters, our Gypsy brothers and sisters, all of us need to search our hearts and ask the question, where am I more in line with culture? That I am with the call of Jesus Christ. We are citizens of heaven now. Citizens of heaven. The Bible calls us strangers and pilgrims of this world. It's not quite like dual citizenship. And I've got British passport. I've got British citizenship and Irish citizenship. I can have both. It's not quite like that though. What Jesus isn't saying is like, you can just add it on. Jesus is saying, no, you're no longer a citizen of this earth. You're a citizen of the kingdom now walk worthy of that. We have to ask the question again, where am I following more of my traditional church culture than I am the call of Jesus Christ? For baby boomer, boomers, for Gen X, for millennials, for Gen Z, where am I following my generational culture more than I'm following the call of Jesus Christ in my life? And then we find that and we repent of that and we run to Jesus with his mercy and his grace, to forgive us for those things and to empower us to live the way he's calling us to live. And if you've been listening to all of this this morning and you're not a believer, please know how close he is. He's not a distant God. He's not powerless. He deeply cares. He would have it that you would be born where you were born in the time that you were born so you'd hear sermons like this and readings like what we've read and hymns like what we've sung so that you could find him because he's such a merciful God. So come to Jesus, the author of life, the reason you exist and find life in him. That's the call to both believer and unbeliever this morning. Come more to Jesus and find true life, true purpose. He is the goal. He's the prize. Come and know him. Knowing him, there is no greater thing. Amen.